Hey, I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today, we're going to discuss the outsider techno thriller after last season with our guest, Brom Reuter. We're going to talk about our idea of anti-masterpieces, about why we think this movie is a good example of that and a successful work of outsider art in general. But first, we've recently gotten a few new Patreon supporters, and we want to give them all a shout out here on air to thank them for their support. Recently, aforementioned guest Brom Reuter and Callum Marsh have joined our formalist friend tier on Patreon, alongside supporters David Baffa, Kevin Eastwood, Ryan Swen, and Joseph Elliott. So thank you to all those folks for your continued support. And if you, the listener listening to this, want to help keep Film Formally going, and you're not one of the people on Patreon, you can support us there as well. We offer a few different donation tiers, our most popular option being Formalist Friend, which gains you access to our monthly Zoom hangouts, Patreon-exclusive posts, and starting next season, monthly commentary episodes. Okay, that's our little spiel about Patreon. Whether you support us on there or if you just listen to the show, we thank you so much, and we welcome you to Film Formal. So, so Will, I think we should talk about our own experience with that for last season in terms of like where we're coming from. Brum, you're very familiar with it. Will, you're pretty familiar. And I just watched for the first time yesterday, which I think is a good spectrum yeah. of experience because I'm, oh, I'm very confused right now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. So uh, I'd love That's to talk right. about it. <laughs> Everybody with no ballast in our hearts, we welcome you. Welcome you to Film Formally. Today we're talking to Brum Reuter. Hi, Brum. Hi. He's a filmmaker from the Netherlands. The subject is after last season, which you just heard Devin explaining our relative experience levels with. In 2009, <laughs> a trailer appeared for a movie that appeared to feature an MRI made out of cardboard, and the trailer had no discernible plot. The film turned out to be even more inexplicable than the trailer, full of long, awkward pauses, inscrutable spatial connections, prosaic and seemingly irrelevant dialogue that was poorly recorded and a very, uh, let's call it, twisty plot. The film is often derided as terrible, but it's actually great, and it touches at a kind of lot of aspects of quote-unquote so bad they're good movies that all of us here, including our wonderful guests, are pretty interested in. So we're here to talk about that. Uh, we uh, we all have somewhat different experience levels. I've known about this movie for several months, have watched it twice now. Devin watched it just yesterday. And Brom, actually, I don't know exactly. how. What's your exact experience levels with this movie? So I kept track of my movie watching habits before Letterboxd was around on this website uh, called What I Watch, which was a, a Dutch-made website. And according to that website, I saw it in 2012. So... That was the first time that I watched it. And since then, I have not watched it until last week. But I have continuously thought about it. And uh, every time I came across it, like in your list, for instance, I was immediately taken back to that very moment where I was sitting with my was a roommate on the couch and we were just staring at the screen entirely baffled <laughs> and not knowing. Uh, we had also been working up because we saw that trailer in like 2010 at some point on Apple trailers. and. So we had been building up to this moment and then finally we sat down and it was just the most mesmerizing experience you can have at the at the movies. 
True. Short of seeing one of the fabled 35 millimeter prints of this film. One of the three or four that were probably destroyed. And we should (laughs) clarify that this film is extraordinarily difficult to grab through legal means unless you happen to catch one of its very limited DVD <laughs> uh, copies on eBay. Is it is it illegal to say, and you can cut this out if, it, if it's actually illegal, but is it illegal to say that it's on YouTube currently at the time of recording? It's not illegal. And in fact, ah. no one would ever be prosecuted for doing that. Um, <laughs> so t- to me, there are two ways to enter this conversation where I'm coming from. One is my own thoughts about after last season, but another is, will your theory of the anti-masterpiece, and this is a big kind of central thesis I want to make on this podcast, is this is not a bad movie episode. This is not a bad movie. This is not us doing let's laugh at this bad movie. You know, I I think all three of us are equivalently kind of done (laughs) with the stereotypical bad movie podcast right the whole okay get a load of these guys get a load of this tommy wiseau character isn't this isn't this funny the way he speaks and (laughs) yeah i mean it is funny and yet we are talking about a movie that is not traditionally competent um will and and i think this really gets down especially to your theory will about what constitutes an accidental masterpiece and i'm gonna i'm gonna read from your letterbox list here Films that become astonishing, essential works of art in spite of a distinct lack of conventional competence on the part of their makers. I, I think this could be seen as somewhat rhythmic with uh, the idea of outsider art. Yeah. The idea of, of someone coming in outside of the traditions that define an art form and making something that, because of that quality, is truly unique and special. Yeah, and it doesn't it doesn't have to be outsider art but it but it often is it very often is sorry you were yeah like something. street fighter the movie which is on your list of anti-masterpieces is by no means outsider art that was no. directed by the person who wrote die hard yeah but yeah no the the idea of the anti-masterpiece just comes from not being satisfied with so bad it's good because it's not that these movies are are, are bad right they're they're good mm-hmm. they have lots of qualities that we associate with bad movies a lot of the time it's not because those qualities are bad that they're good but also not being satisfied with calling them like accidental masterpieces or or hidden masterpieces or whatever that seemed wrong because what they display is not mastery of the form in the way we typically understand it and and the films either from what we know of their production or just the films themselves heavily suggest a lack of of that kind of granular mastery and yet the films are hugely successful um and they they tend to nonetheless kind of reflect a a vision, right? Like a, a personal voice. So they fly in the face of the idea of mastery in art. And uh, if that should even be how we judge art is by how masterfully it's made, or if that should be the sole means by which we judge art or by we judge the success of artists. So that's the idea of the Andy masterpiece. And like, yeah, like the famous one, the most famous one is probably The Room at this point, then Plan 9 from Outer Space, and then Stuff like Birdemic or Food Fight or a Talking Cat is on there, but yeah, that's that's the that's the idea. It also comes from a kind of dissatisfaction I've had with. There's so many different theories about why these movies are so enjoyable and and how to kind of categorize them, and um, so many of them are dissatisfying to me because they come from the starting point of either it's a bad movie. Or it's a good movie because it's incompetent, neither of which quite gets to the meat of the matter. 
I've been thinking a lot about this in the past week. And with this episode coming up, I was actually thinking more and more about it. I used to watch, I, I have friendships just like you built entirely around watching quote unquote bad movies. I used to uh, have a friend who I, uh, with whom I would watch like all the Uwe Boll movies like House of the Dead, Alone in the Dark, you know, those things. We would actually track them down, which wasn't that difficult because most of them were at video rental stores. And my reasoning for uh, putting uh, House of the Dead on my top 50 favorite films of all time is that I always said, like, I learned the most from watching that movie as a filmmaker. It, Well, yeah, back then I would say, like, it showed me everything that I shouldn't be doing as a filmmaker. But the older I get, the more I've made over the course of this, like, past 10 years as a filmmaker, the more I'm looking for little personal flourishes. And Mm. in our, you know, capitalist hellscape, uh, Disney, whatever. It's very difficult to get those flourishes through because everything feels so ironed out. Everything feels so safe and, you know, all that stuff. And I'm not even asking people, like, I don't really like the type of horror movies that go all the way over the top and have a lot of gore in them. It's like, I like Brain Dead, and that's about it. But there are so many of them that, like, there's this whole market for that. But the type of film, like, after last season, which is basically like a thriller drama, maybe, I don't know. You know, it has so many very specific choices that make it it such a unique experience as well as Mm. there's a lot of personality coming through that I miss in a lot of films. If I had to express how my own tastes in films have changed over the past, you know, decade or so, it's that I've gone from, I think, really prioritizing formal, like formal excellence to can I see the personality of the filmmaker behind this? Um, I think that's been a major shift in how I see movies. I think this is probably the root of why we all, none of us have much time for Marvel films, etc. <laughs> because, you know, that whole, the whole purpose of that enterprise is to iron out uh, personality, right? It's, it's, it's to uh, create uniformity. And yeah, part of what's beautiful about a film like uh, After Last Season, or I think especially any film by Ed Wood, um, is that there's such incredible self-portraits. Uh, they are well sketched, you know, even though they're, they're probably not conscious self-portraits with the exception of probably Glenn or Glenda, they, at least in the ways the filmmakers intend, um, I think Glenn or Glenda is actually very, a lot of the best parts of the film are totally intentional. But I think that that's one kind of subcategory of anti-masterpiece for me, the accidental self-portrait that reveals, you know, maybe a troubled soul, but a soul. This is a good way to segue into what the hell is after last season. Yeah, that's a good, that's um, a good, Yeah. I have some parallels I want to draw, but I don't think those parallels would be useful until we describe what is this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I've no, I've no way into this. I'll leave it to one of you to, to, to <laughs> properly get us going on this. Cause whoa, whoa, I, I, <laughs> I think I can do it. All right. So after last season, it, it, I mean, for the first roughly half of after last season, it is, or feels pretty plotless or maybe like the first half hour or so. It's about medical students and they're looking at these MRIs and they're going to each other's houses and they're talking vaguely about test results and things and what they're going to do and places they've been. And it's largely interesting for, number one, it's apparent aimlessness at that point. And number two, this overwhelming sense of falsity to all of its spaces and all of its dialogue. So by... The end of this kind of opening half hour, 
you're pretty much adrift. There's just all these weird spaces that are like covered in white sheets and paper. It's it's clearly shot in a warehouse and it has all these white walls and there's that MRI machine that's famously <laughs> made of cardboard. But, but at a certain point, these two med students start doing could like this experiment where the experiment is they put microchips like on their temples i guess like just above their cheek and that allows them to read each other's thoughts as computer generated images of very very basic geometric shapes so you will actually see these with virtually no audio except for the voiceover of them saying what they are so they'll describe like oh cubes oh spheres oh like I guess it's a bird and there's a flower and there'll be like extremely like mid-1980s basic, if that, CGI images of these birds or these cubes. Or eventually uh, they start seeing what appear to be murders, but it's not stuff that they're conjuring to mind. And it becomes clear to them and to us that they are witnessing the murders that they have seen taking place around campus. And they realize that maybe we can stop it since we can see it. <laughs> and that's that's kind of the that's kind of the like log line premise of after last season. Two students who are like doing this mutual mind reading thing through this chip, realizing that they are seeing a future and what's going on elsewhere with people who are not wearing the chip. And they realize maybe we can stop these murders that are taking place. But Will, you're, you you left a, you left off at the at the real twist, which is that. The part of the film that you described as the logline never happened, <laughs> but maybe it did. And who are we to judge? Um, <laughs> and but yeah, so about with with about twenty five minutes left to go, one of our lead characters wakes up to realize that the part of the film where the plot actually starts was in fact a a dream. <laughs> yeah, there was no uh, microchip. Yeah, there was no microchip. <laughs> Yeah, um, but yeah, it, yeah. it kind of wasn't as well. Um, can you can you explain? Will explain yeah, the plot. Well, right to me. before he wakes up from the dream, they see images of the murderer entering the room that they're in. Like they see from the POV of the, or the murderer or rough POV, him coming in with his knife. Is that the room that they're in? That that was with the with a piece of paper on the door. <laughs> yeah. yeah so and he goes into a room that has a piece of paper that says psychology exercise on it oh god um, yes that's true oh yeah this is more than anything else is the most thriller type aspect of the entire film this next sequence and i gotta say it's genuinely pretty suspenseful and thrilling because he opens the door and there's no one there and objects start slowly moving around like a, like chairs slowly move or like milk crates will like kind of slide a couple feet across the floor. And then uh, our two heroes start getting stabbed in the arm and like <laughs> attacked uh, very, very slowly as like things are slowly moving around. But the thing is, after this dream happens and the dude wakes up, he looks outside there, the, psych- the room where they're in the psychology exercise room, and there's an actual dude with a knife who's actually killed someone and is apparently the actual murderer. Mm-hmm. And when the murderer comes to kill them, the murderer gets subdued by a ghost. Like there's also a ghost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, did we forget or did we like that's that's the first moment where it's totally clear that, oh, this is actually a ghost story. Yeah. And then there's a little wrap up where uh, what is supposed to be an FBI guy talks a little about 
the suspect and what he thinks happened. And then like the two students kind of wrap up with a vague conversation. And then there's a conversation by these two middle-aged women where they talk a little about the guy who was the ghost towards the tail end of the conversation and about his a little bit about his death they allude to and they we see a photo of the guy who was a ghost for the first time and then the movie ends and that's after last season genuinely inspiring moment that last little section of just like oh this is an epilogue and we're just going to talk about this ghost and you know like tie it all together also did you know that the fbi agent uh, is also the dude from the very start of the movie that goes into the paper MR- MRI machine. I thought he was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. It's the same guy. Yeah. I don't know what, what its significance is that it's the same guy, but having read a lot of interviews about this movie, I think the fact it's the same guy is what got the director excited to put him in the end of the movie because in his in his way of making films, that was a twist because it's something that we recognize from before that would come after. And this is not a criticism on him, by the way, but this is just like, there's the ways in which he made this movie that feel very basic and in the most abstract way that you can think of because a lot of the movie, so a lot of the movie is a very boring, mundane dialogue. Most of it is just actors sitting around and telling each other how they went through a town and not (laughs) actually into the town or, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) It's, um, there's lots of that. And not only that, but they're without fail staged in the least dynamic ways you can imagine. I don't think we've quite described just what this production design of this movie is. Yeah. Um, it is, um, you know, it, it, it takes place at, at at least one, I, I, I lost count, maybe it's multiple high-end like institutions. <laughs> and um, yet it is very transparently shot and uh, in an unfinished house or warehouse of some sort and, and and so you you have this weirdly down-to-earth dialogue juxtaposed with the spaces that resemble the spaces that they're trying to be only in the most symbolic way there's a medium article i wish i'd written down the name of the author that you sent us jason kaufman yeah it's written by jason jason kaufman and uh, one line stuck out to me which is after last season gives the viewer almost nothing on which to suspend their disbelief instead presenting the barest suggestion of story characters props locations and actions it does not meet the viewer halfway on any level and i think that's a wonderful description uh it it forces you to confront the semiotics of what you you find acceptable as believable cinema while at the same time presenting dialogue that forces you to constantly question okay not only does this fit into the story but if it doesn't fit into the story as a final product what was the auteur's intent uh with putting all that in there right what 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 am i supposed to glean from this what am i actually gleaning from this and what's the gap between that so for the record i i saw this movie for the first time yesterday it feels like a fever dream. Um, I, I feel like I I went to sleep in the middle of the day and dreamt that I maybe watched the movie. I'm still not entirely sure if I did. It really is the barest suggestion of what a space is. Like before a scene starts, there will be a couple of hastily typed up pieces of paper that say like two dormitory residents. The dormitory has new recycling containers. And then <laughs> then you'll see like a door to what is clearly like a trailer or a warehouse. And then we'll see inside the space where someone is talking and it's it seems to be clearly a warehouse. So normally you would think, oh, this isn't the dormitory. But you'll see like very, very cheap polka dot wallpaper 
that is only covering part of the wall and is is hastily taped up and has creases and seams. You'll see chairs that look like they're warehouse chairs, um, except one of them has like leopard print cushions on it. Other than that, it just looks and feels like a warehouse. Like there's a desk in the middle of the room that appears to be made of like very a very cheap plank of wood, you know, uh, with a the old computer on it. It reminded me, and I mean this in the most complimentary way possible. Um, it reminded me of uh, does anyone here watched Homestar Runner, uh, the right. uh, the old Flash series? Um, there's a film within a film that a character makes in that called Dangeresque, and uh, there's a scene where they, they have to go to Istanbul, and um, Istanbul in this film within a film is represented by a character wearing a sandwich board that just says Istanbul on it, um, standing like in the middle of the frame, and I think. This film is the real version of that, where it's it's just giving you, it's just telling you, this is this place, not giving you any evidence that it's actually this place, not backing that up with anything resembling production design or lighting. I mean, well, we could talk about the lighting and then forcing <laughs> I'm actually you to accept super ex- it. I'm super excited for you to dig into this <laughs> as a cinematographer. Oh <laughs> yeah. But like, just as a, just as a, uh, an example, another example is there's a white wall and there's a little orange paper. Uh, saying uh, with, mm-hmm. with a little black box with a pro Rollis corporation. And then the actress, uh, Peggy McLellan, is standing next to it. And the scene starts, I think, right after the director, Mark Regan, said action. And you have this like little beat of her getting into her character and then walking up to a desk announcing her arrival. But we don't see the like, it's just a white wall and an orange and the and an orange paper. And the entire film has this very specific, there's an MRI, the famous MRI machine that's made of paper, uh, which looks great and weird at the same time. So that room is an MRI room, but it's clearly someone's bedroom (laughs) that they just emptied out. And the walls are pink. Ironically, I found it totally believable because that looks just like my dentist's office. Oh, really? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I went to. Maybe I'm too European to get this uh, to get into this. (laughs) Well, weirdly, I don't know. Weirdly, like I actually like that's that's the very first thing you see in the film, and I actually thought like, wow, this is better than I've been led to believe. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then you get to the warehouse, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I get it. Well, you don't think the the MRI machine. Looks better than you were like. No, to no, but though, the, walls. <laughs> the walls. Yeah, yeah, the walls. Yeah. The walls are kind the walls of believable. Are just pink. They have like yeah. printout, um, like braid scads on. Them. I <laughs> like, tell you, like, even, even even better. Uh, at the top of that wall, uh, someone pasted all these pieces of paper right next to yeah. each other to create. I don't like it. Is the paper company was very happy with them? Let's say that. <laughs> But, we'll put a uh, screenshot in our uh, in our yeah. show notes because it is impossible to explain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it I can't imagine thing. it being more believable with the paper. So my girlfriend was was asking me about this episode. It's like, what, what are you recording it on? Because she hadn't seen the film because I'm not going to put her through that. She was like, oh, okay. So like, and I tried to explain it to her. I was like, I, I can't explain it. Just watch the trailer. And I just pulled up the trailer on my phone and showed it. And after a minute, she just started shoutings like oh dear god what is this i don't i well, i'm so confused you know there is there is uh it is so alienating and that is the reaction that everyone has it is so alienating to watch and it and that's the unique experience of the fi- of this film or as uh the director mark region himself uh said on his website in one of the many versions that i found through 
the way back machine uh some moviegoers who saw after last season in theaters lost their sense of reality for a short time they believed they were losing their mind because the movie was so engrossing and real <laughs> that 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 is uh, his own uh, in his own words but it is that it is it is very alienating the thing is like yeah very little like a lot of things that he says about the movie will be like off in some way or another but like uh, a very little it is out and out wrong of the limited things we have of mark region talking about after last season like there are some things where where there's clear a clear disconnect in his expectations for how the movie would be received and how it was received but i'll pull up the quote here he gets asked like what were your influences for this movie and he says like I like the ball. Dub and Dubber from the Firely Brothers. That's funny. And then the Indiana Jones movies. And the interviewer like presses him like, but is there anything that specifically influenced this movie? He's like, just thrillers. The Sixth Sense, maybe that had some influence. The Exorcist. But really when I did this film, I didn't have them in mind. This is something different that I wanted to do. Which is clear because it is so unique. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it And it's it's so different. And he says, uh, I wanted to explore some concepts related to schizophrenia and the boundaries of science and see where science ends and science fiction starts. And he's like completely right. Like the film, my thesis for the film is that the film is about overcoming metaphysical despair, right? (laughs) Like overcoming uh, 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 the despair of... um, not fully grasping your reality or the limits or nature of your reality and at first recognizing your limitations and being able to do that and then like accepting them. It's literally about people who like map the brain. We start with an MRI that maps the brain and it's not intentional, but that idea is like implicitly mocked by the like paper MRI (laughs) machine. And then we get two students who are like literally able to see what's inside each other's brain, but through either the limitations of the technology or because that's just what our brains look like, it's all just basic geometry, right? <laughs> like it's all extremely quote unquote unreal looking stuff. It is not photographic realism the way that in Inception, everyone's running around extremely concrete, photographically realistic looking spaces, right? Like it's like a bird made of two spheres, a triangle, and an oval for a wing. The 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 kind of cascade of twists where it's like, oh, the murder is invisible. Oh, it was a dream. Oh, the there is, however, a ghost, but there was no science. Then at the end, uh, the ghost being the one who stops the knife murderer. <laughs> There's just this slow dispensation with science as a solution to concreteness, metaphysical sureness. And at the end, it's just this kind of, with these two, I mean, we'll get into the last scene. Like, I love the last scene a lot. I think it's legitimately, like, an amazing scene in a really, really positive way. But it's just beautiful because it, 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 it it's a direct challenge to the viewer's own sense of their standards of reality or memory or representation of those things the ubiquitous white paper on the wall or it, it changes colors but the pa- piece of paper on the wall that tells you where you are in any given moment the, the moment that really sticks out for me and i think there's a few shots like this it cuts to an insert of the paper uh, the titular paper on the wall the after last season paper yeah the, the paper the ubiquitous and this is i think the, the shot that kind of every time i saw it it did break me uh because um, it, it feels like it's almost going out of its way to challenge the reality of the film it's a 
clearly a punch in on a wide shot of this paper uh, that has no movement, no grain, nothing. It's it's literally could just as well be like a low res JPEG of a blank white paper with the words psychology exercise superimposed on the top of it. And the words psychology <laughs> exercise are of a different resolution than the background. It lingers on screen for just long enough for you to register deeply how unreal it is and it's not only a shot that refuses to engage with the reality around it or match it it's a it's a shot that refuses to engage with the reality within itself right it's two elements that could not be more disparate superimposed onto each other itself superimposed in the middle of a montage that doesn't that doesn't match it for even even in one element right even though the exposure and color balance are wrong (laughs) and and not only that, but it is telling us what our environment is. So it's essentially the film, again, I, I'm sure without realizing it, putting as many hurdles as possible between us and truly f- feeling immersed in the reality of it. I don't know, it's actually one of the most effective distancing techniques I've seen in cinema. <laughs> yeah, it's emblematic of the rest. The, the visual effects go way beyond that you know, the geometric shapes and stuff that they see in each other's brains, because there's also these moments where I'm, I, I have a shot I pulled up right now. We should just put so many screenshots. <laughs> in the show yeah, there will be many because it's so difficult to explain, but it's just like in, in the, in the, like your lower third is basically the two actors sitting next to each other. And they are there for, I don't know, they have like a job interview or something. Uh, at certain point, points, you can't help but zone out because the, dialogue is as mundane as it is uh which kind of helps the whole dreamlike quality of the film as well because it's really hard to keep track of who everyone is and where this plot is going and if there even is a plot so uh right behind those actors they put these white walls or white mm-hmm. blocks to not entirely show the fact that they're in a warehouse a very 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 cold warehouse that should double for a uh you know high-end facility medical facility whatnot but they just basically got that image and then around the actors uh made like a a cloning you know using the cloning tool from photoshop and then just like extend the block so less of the warehouse would be noticeable uh once again very difficult to explain but if you actually look at it and you just said uh the grain uh just there is no grain whatsoever if you look at those parts then there's no grain there. The top half of the image, yeah, it, yeah. the grain is frozen because it's a yeah, still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Because someone just kind of like went over that and tried to extend these blocks to hide more of that warehouse, to uh, sell it more. Like, But then on the other side of that, of that shot is this still a really big part of the warehouse. So it's <laughs> like it's only half yeah. of it, you know, as if someone ran out of time or, you know, this was the vision to like we said or like like will said in his incredible thesis of this film it's like yeah it is it is playing with reality and and how much we can actually keep track of that so yeah a film about ontology (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting to me on that note because people single out the cgi so when they use the little chips that they apply to their brains um we see what they see through those chips which is uh i would say it brings to mind nothing less for me than like Bubsy 3D or the first Star Fox game. 
I read a review that stuck with me of the first Star Fox game that says the graphics in today's age look like half-melted Lego blocks. And that's about what we get here. We see kind of this mind-reading process, and it's all represented by extremely simplistic shapes, extraordinarily uncanny animation, especially when it's trying to represent humans. Weirdly enough to me, this was actually the single visual element of the film that felt most conventionally justified. They go out of their way <laughs> to to explain why we're seeing these things. And I think it's rather effective if the film around it was more conventionally competent. Um, I think this would go by unnoticed and would be a, considered a gesture with a capital G instead of a mistake of which the vast majority of kind of reviews i've read of this treat this as like a hilarious mistake but i, I don't know i think it's rather effective it's this it, it's this wonderful portrayal of like deciphering uh almost like a weak signal i don't know i i really found it compelling there's a little bit of science fact to it as well where like right now like early attempts to like translate our like brain images um are very imprecise in, in and of themselves and it's unclear to what extent that's the limits of the technology and to what extent that's because our memories aren't as precise or as photographic as we often assume them to be. Another great thing about these animations, aside from the fact that they go on for like literally minutes at a time, is that you'll hear this voiceover describing them and often it will describe them pretty accurately and sometimes it'll describe things that we cannot see the details of because it's merely representational imagery, right, of of what the machine is <laughs> seeing uh, in someone's mind. And then sometimes they'll flat out contradict what we're seeing in the animations in their voiceover. One of my favorites is when they're seeing one of the attacks, uh, the victim that they're seeing, one of them says like, oh, her left arm is is bleeding, it's like covered in blood. And we can see her left arm, but there's no blood on her left arm. But uh, what I love about that moment specifically is that when these two medical students get attacked by the invisible assailant, he he manages to stab both of them. And what does he stab? He stabs both of their left arms. And we can actually see the blood now. And it's just it's just all these very weird uh, connections to things that seem to be completely irrelevant before, like a guy sliding into an MRI machine becoming a like big expository, like end of psycho style FBI guy, you know? Yeah, and it all just it it all contributes to the whole film in a way feeling like it's like a brain scan, you know what I mean? Like an imperfect brain scan of the guy who made it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, I, do, I do want to add that the 3D, the very low poly geometric shapes, the fish colliding with like the, the, the orange and the green, the brown blocks. It's just so beautiful. I just, I just love looking at them to get into a little bit of the aesthetic of the film, like from the very start, it opens with the Index Square logo, which is uh, Mark Regan, the production director, company, once yeah. again, his his production company. And then it cuts to this shot of like three gray, different shades of gray uh, planes with like a yellow, orangey, and then a blue thingy. And that goes on for a little bit. And there's some music behind it. And then it starts, and then it cuts to like an alien-like reveal of the after last season you know, title card uh, before the movie starts. And it is it is such a specific aesthetic, uh, which is also emblematic of the rest of the movie because there are such these specific 
elements like the paper that we talked about there's also shots of like outside of a house and then there's paper pasted to the walls like there's these he's just very consistent in his choices and his aesthetics and it has a very clear internal logic yeah yeah that's that's where i wanted to go this almost seems like the um grotesque logical conclusion to something i often tell my students which is that i don't care as much when, especially when it comes to lighting, I don't care as much that you follow any given tradition, but that you have an internal logic, right? That, and the lighting in this film follows that. It it, it has a very distinct internal logic. I think I want to separate out two strands of thought here. One is the logic of how the lighting was conceived, which I can I think is fairly easy to reverse engineer, and the logic of the effect of the lighting, right? Because the effect of the lighting is this overwhelmingly flat brittle aesthetic right um you have a most scenes have a very bright hard key light off to camera right usually um and you can tell because the shadows the actors cast are usually down to the left so and it's essentially what this does is it flattens out the scene this is a technique known as front lighting you are flattening out the scene and removing three-dimensionality from it because you are lighting the actors right directly in the face with a hard source and it, it does make the institutional scenes feel clinical <laughs> and oh, yes. it also it also serves to highlight for example all of the seams in the production design this is one of the reasons why you know you, people don't usually front light with a hard source i'd say with the sole exception of the uh bedroom mri room which i think is actually quite uh, aesthetically more pleasing than the rest of the film <laughs> um it feels a little more motivated and that's one thing right the lighting is phenomenally unmotivated for a def for a definition of what lighting motivation is i refer you to our lighting motivation episode in season two but if you were to ask me where's the where's the light supposed to be coming from in any given scene uh, I, I, yeah i'd probably have a heart attack uh it's uh <laughs> it's legitimately hard to suss out or even suss out what the intended sources right and that gets us to the thought process behind it and i recognize this thought process because i used to light like this when i was starting out and so did most people who, who were new to this when you're filming your first film and especially if you don't have much photography experience or theory experience usually the one thing you know is that you need to expose it well right you need to get an exposure and what's the easiest way to get an exposure put a light next to the camera shine it at the actors meter it and then go okay we have an exposure we're lit and to me, that is the most logical explanation for the aesthetic of this film. There is no attention paid to texture, directionality, motivation, color, anything. Well, actually, most of it's quite well white balanced. There's one quote from the director who said he had only three lights, but sometimes he would use two, sometimes only one. And I'm like, wow, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> but i i still remember back when i was shooting on my first 60 millimeter films uh i would just go okay well like you know like uh, it hit me with the diner basically the lighting was indistinguishable from most of after last season it was okay we're in a diner so let's put up a light so we can see the actors we're lit <laughs> and that tends to lead to this aesthetic right and then you know part of the traditional development or conventional development of a cinematographer is moving beyond that but the fact that this film is it's so palpably at square one in that in that train of thought if anything it it fits more into the film's other aesthetic proclivities than a more sophisticated lighting ideology would it's kind of fascinating yeah i came across a shot of someone mentioning like that they received a clock radio 
from a significant other or a friend, and then it cuts to a shot of a radio, or sorry, a clock in front of a radio. Like those are two separate <laughs> right. things. And that is like you just <laughs> talked about like square, you know, square ones. Like it really feels in everything that this movie is and everything that we know about this movie that the director had this like, um, that he designed everything according to some kind of preconceived notion of what a film needs in order to be successful or effective, right? Mm-hmm. So he shot it on 35 because this is 2009. And a 35 millimeter film has a better chance of getting distribution than a digital made film, for a digital shot film, for instance. He also said that the film cost five million. This is something that Jason Kaufman, who wrote the article, which is probably in the show notes because you should really read it because it's really good. And he was saying uh, if Mark Regan was hoping to find a distributor for the film, it is entirely possible that he was simply exaggerating the cost of his film's production in order to make it seem more desirable. This is a common tactic among low-budget independent filmmakers looking to sell distribution rights for their films. Higher perceived production value means a better price paid for distribution. This also ties into the fact that he only got uh, SAG actors. So actors that are affiliated with uh, the Screen Actors Guild, which somehow has some kind of like distribution reason as well. And it's cheaper for people. And I, I don't know. I'm not from the U.S., But also this all ties back into his vision for the film as well. And I want to get into the crew in a little bit because there's something weird going on there and I really want to talk about it. There's something weird. I I really want to get into the whole production of this because there's a lot that is weird here. Even more so than like, I mean, a lot of these films have been demystified. Like the room has been totally demystified. We know like that that, that production has been like analyzed like the Zapruder film. Nothing left there. But this is still so unknown to me and I read a bunch about it. <laughs> I, I will I will get into that but the one thing that I want to highlight is the fact that he said in an interview and I think it was a filmmaker interview where he said that he used the mundane dialogue to contrast the scary bits and that is like the yeah. most square one kind of thinking it's like oh if I just offset this with this then it has mm-hmm. this effect you know it is such a he really goes for like the most effective way of making a film and seems to be way more concerned with finishing the film than the film itself to a certain degree. Uh, and, the, and the last bit that I want to highlight is that he apparently, or the distributors, but I don't believe that there were distributors, uh, the distributors asked to destroy the 35 millimeter prints, which were there four of, uh, because it was cheaper uh, then to send them back and also he used that to ensure dvd sales because you there was no other way to view this movie that feels off to me like something's weird there right <laughs> like the idea that somehow destroying the 35 prints would you could just pack them in a box i don't know <laughs> yeah but then they're around i don't i don't yeah i don't know either but let's talk about the five million. <laughs> uh, like, 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 let, like. I mean, I, I, again, I, I hate to keep bringing up the room, but it's such a good comparison for a few of these things. The room was allegedly made for six million dollars, and that was considered a big mystery. And still, that feels off to me. But that is a million times more understandable than this costing five million dollars, um, even with the thirty-five millimeter film. I mean, it's especially in two thousand nine. It wasn't that expensive. Um, it yeah. was not five million expensive. Like, if if one were to ask me, okay, if you paid everyone in this crew full price, everything for post, whatever, how much would this phone cost? I would guess, at the very outermost, half a million. 
Um, yeah, you know, for, for this film, and that's you know that's kind of me pulling a number out of thin air, but that's like my very liberal high estimate. Do that would know, be like, oh, that's high for what for what we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. they, they yeah. you know, in conventional terms, they did not get their money's worth um, yeah. for half a million dollars, right? I mean, what do you mean? <laughs> this movie is perfect. Shut up. <laughs> it's it's funny that I had to, like the duality of how I think about this movie or and movies like it is very palpable sometimes. Um, like, you know, it's both good and what I would say is that he knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And he knew what was less important to that, right? <laughs> like he like clearly the MRI was not like getting it photographically realistic was not terribly important to what he wanted the film to be, right? Like the actors yeah. delivering non-stilted performances was not terribly important. I mean, he he talks in his interview about how he gave them a little bit of info about their characters before they started shooting. And if they asked him questions, he would talk about their backgrounds. So like he had these characters fleshed out, um, but that when they shot, he would just trust them and shoot single takes. And it sounds like unless the actors specifically asked for a second takes and they had to fight for second takes, yeah. they wouldn't get them. And it's just because he knew exactly what was important for what he was doing and what wasn't. And yeah, you he, can had, either... he had a very clear vision of what yeah, this was yeah. supposed to look mm-hmm. like. Yeah. But the thing is that like he's he's right about all everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> all, like he was he was he was totally right. Maybe not for all the reasons he thought he yeah. was like that he or that he intellectualized that he was, but like his stated intent for the movie lines up with all these weird decisions they made and the things he chose to focus on and not focus on. And that's why it's so good because it's such yeah. a singular thing because it only could have originated from him. You know, it could have only been made in under these circumstances. Uh, and he's self-aware enough because also on that same website in that same moment in time, thanks to the Wayback Machine and I'm, he said, uh, there, there's this question that he asks himself, uh, should other filmmakers follow the example of after last season? Uh, and underneath it, it says, uh, uh, the movie was made through a lot of work. The emotions and effects in the movie were made by putting the actors, the crew, and the production through an unpleasant process. Uh, making after last season was very difficult because of the budget. The director does not see the movie as an example to follow. Hmm. So he's he's self-aware enough that he, uh, you know, screwed up in production-wise somewhere along the lines. Also because uh, Jason Kulis, who plays Matthew, who's one of the main actors who has the whole microchip thing, uh, has been very outspoken about this uh, as well, how cold it was in the warehouse because they couldn't have heaters on because it would blow out the fuses because there were well, one, two, or three lights running at all times. <laughs> and those lights were certainly bright. Like, they're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was before we had LEDs. You can get a brightness without... Like, these Like these looked like one or two Ks. Which also ties back into that idea of, like, he knew exactly what he needed. He needed to shoot in on 35. He needed to use these specific lights. You know, like, he had all these elements in place and then entirely followed his own vision and then it looks like this, which is incredible. Where yeah. do you think that five million went? And does that five million exist? <laughs> no, no, uh, no. I'm I'm very certain it is exa- that was like Jason Kaufman says. It is exaggerated. The weirdest part about this movie, and if you go to the IMDb, uh, we've all made movies. All three of us have made movies. 
great movies, bad movies, and whatnot. There have been crews, and those crews have, you know, sometimes that was, you know, your mom who did one thing on a movie, and then other times it was like a friend who (laughs) has been making many films, you know, alongside of you. There are many people mentioned on this crew list on IMDb, and uh, except for two people who worked on this movie, uh, which excludes the actors and the director, no one has any other credits. And I double checked every name with their role and with their and uh, through Google, and I could not find any of them. Not even like personal profiles, no. that sort of thing. Wow. No. Yeah. <laughs> that is truly bizarre in our online interconnected world. I mean, you know, if it if it was like five of them, it would have been like, yeah, sure, you know, that was someone's mom or that was something, you know, like. Mm-hmm. But uh, besides uh, Daniel Matson, who was the uh, first AC, who I've actually reached out to, haven't heard anything from him back, but I would love to grill him on this whole process. But I found him through a forum on cinematography.com, and around the time that they were making this movie according to the actors which was like january february 2008 he was asking specific questions about the uh camera the bl3 35 millimeter re and and if there was a manual for it which you know it's just wonderful Uh, (laughs) and someone responded to that it's like no it's a really easy camera there's no manual just do it so you know that explains Uh, that's very cinematography.com advice i'll say (laughs) oh you're familiar (laughs) Oh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, he was posting that, and he was also posting about, like, uh, there was this one moment he asked at some point, a production I am working on wants to rent several cars from private owners and not through a special movie car rental facility. The idea is that this will save him a lot of money. This sounds like this was right beginning February. This sounds like this was uh, after last season related, although there are some uh, speculation things in here, of course. But, like... I, you know, you're sleuthing for a reason. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Daniel Matson went on to create his own company uh, in 2011. Uh, he His last credit is from 2016. Uh, his company website, just not very much there. And every, he's based in Massachusetts, which, you know, this movie was shot in Massachusetts, Boston, Boston area. So it kind of checks out. And he's the only one that I could find that really has some kind of direct link to this movie outside of the actors. The other person that has been mentioned in the credits, for instance, is Elizabeth Hull, who is the casting department. But every actor and every interview that I've read with actors, which there aren't a lot, but every are saying that um, when they went to the audition, it was in a Barnes and Nobles coffee shop. (laughs) So in public. Uh, which the actors, some of them really enjoyed and others didn't. But they also said like it was just one person sitting in at a table and uh, uh, with, with a little casting paper in front of them that they knew that this was the person they were looking for. And there was no mention of someone else. Um, hmm. And in the entire production, everyone, someone said like there were a lot of crew members walking around one night and then the next night it was just Mark Regan and, well, supposedly Daniel Matson at that point. So you can see that I found a lot of holes in this whole, <laughs> this whole operation. Right. The Barnes & Noble detail is truly bonkers to me. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? Like having your actor do a whole audition in a Barnes & Noble. Yeah, it's a noisy place. 
Yeah, everything about the details of the making of this movie, it, it gets us to a few plausibilities and probabilities. Like, okay, production crew was probably basically two people. And then there was the cast also. Effects, we're not entirely sure who did it, but it's probably a, a significantly smaller team uh, than what's credited, probably. Yeah, there's like five people credited with visual effects and like four with animation. Like, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> for for the for the type of effects, yeah. Yeah, everybody got one take. The sets were hastily constructed. It was super cold on set. Super, super cold, apparently, like brutally cold. Other than that, like what you see in the movie is kind of what we know, right? <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's actually kind of astonishing how, um, how little is known, partly because the movie's just so scarce through official channels, right? Like, you can't put on like midnight movie screenings of the film because apparently Mark Region doesn't even entertain that. Like when people ask him to put on no. screenings and stuff, like he turns down those offers maybe because he feels embarrassed by the film. I hope not, but I did actually find some information about the script. Okay. So one of the actors describes the script as incredibly involving and complex. Uh, another, uh, another says, uh, as it continued, it became a bit confusing trying to envision how it was going to be shot. And also the script felt disconnected from itself, which is once again, Jason Kulas, who I've also reached out to because apparently he still has storyboards and the script. And I really want to see those things because I think it would be great to read them. Kulas mentions as well is that uh, turning some dialogue from what it was into fluent vernacular English. So apparently um, the script was written uh, by someone who had a not as a tight grip on the English language. So he goes on to say, uh, what really gave me a sinking feeling was the dialogue not being fluent English. And even that is setting aside the fact that it was mostly banal and emotional and mundane dialogue. So they basically, the actors on set rewrote parts of the script. He also mentioned that he kind of is bummed out about it now because he wished he hadn't done it because then it would have, would have been entirely his own vision. But Mark Regan apparently was entirely okay with them retooling the dialogue. It reminds me of Hideo Kojima, the first Metal Gear Solid. Um, the dialogue was all translated by a guy. And he, like many translators do, like didn't exactly translate like every phrase and every way that the phrase was like spoken because it's like usually like uh, it lose you quickly lose um, um, a nat like the natural idiomatic flow of the language when you're translating that way, especially into audio. Like it, it it's a little different when translating literature, but. And uh, apparently Hideo Kojima found out and was outraged. And that's why after Metal Gear Solid 1, his games like have increasingly like weird, uh, ornate and uh, often inexplicable language choices in their English uh, versions. Mm -hmm. Because he just demanded like, no, I want you to just like translate what I said, like make it comprehensible, like make it make sense syntactically. <laughs> but like just translate <laughs> my I wrote dialogue. it for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, which is de defensible in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and of course, is pretty key, I think, to um, a lot of what we associate with, like the Kojima style, especially in the West. It's hard. I don't know. <laughs> I would need to read Japanese to know what what people think of his dialogue in his native tongue. But anywho, yeah, I mean, uh, the thing about all this production stuff, other than it being fascinating, when in what it mm. turns up and in what it doesn't, is that I think it it paints a pretty decent picture of a person who 
it's very easy to see this and just like when you see the film shorthand it as incompetence right like oh you didn't know how to make a good movie but i mean between i think i think like the textual reading of the film that we've talked about the this idea of like it being about ontological despair just and like the relief or the the recovery from not knowing how to define and and exactly carve out the limits of reality lines up pretty darn well with the production details right like when you read the production details through the same lens that you're kind of reading the film it works and this kind of leads into i mean it would be i've i've hinted at it a couple of times but the final scene uh of this movie is incredible after the ghost stops the murderer and other stuff has happened we see matthew we see matthew talking on a phone and then he's at a computer and a coat like falls off its hook behind him and he says craig and craig is the name of the ghost that helped them right and another thing earlier is after the ghost saves them from the murderer there's a scene where he there's a ruler kind of hanging in midair and it slowly like dips down and down and down and we hear the ghost saying as this happens like it's slipping through my fingers through my hands and then finally it falls down right and i read this as the ghost experiencing the final physical break from reality right um is that us watching this slowly physical this physical object the ruler like this like literal instrument of measuring reality slip through someone's figure fingers right and it's a disturbing and despairing moment right and then you get the scene where the coat falls off the hanger later and he goes craig and but then the final scene of the film is these two uh women and i i i i'm a little foggy actually is one of them craig's mother it's uh no i think one of them is like craig's partner and the other one is just a friend but it starts with them talking outside a house and it, it looks like a house. Like it, it doesn't look like a representation of a house. It looks like a house and they're like wearing like weather appropriate clothing and they're talking and they have like similarly like meandering dialogue. Like uh, one of them says this amazing line. Uh, My husband saw a coyote over there once. It stayed for a little while, then it went away. It has no relevance, this line of dialogue. And it's a bizarre thing for a person to say. And what I love about it is that it gets at this kind of fuzzy line that the film both embodies and is about about like the 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 distinction between the prosaic and the poetic right between the physical and the metaphysical and like all these things and then when they go inside the house it still feels like a house right like the entrance feels like an entrance way though the the entrance door looks like an entrance door they're in a living room and it looks like a living room right like the windows match we can see the tv um in the corner of the frame and they talk a little bit about Craig. And then my favorite thing in the entire movie happens, which is that there's one thing in this shot of the living room that is bizarre. And that is there are two picture frames and both of them are facing not not a wall, but they're both facing the window. And she picks one up and looks at it and we don't see what that one looks like. And then she picks the other one up and it's Craig and and like she's talking about Craig. And then she puts the picture back and puts and like puts her arms around her friend and they walk away and the film ends. This is genuinely like beautiful and touching. We don't know whether these photos face away like are facing away from the room, like facing towards the window because it's too painful to look at them all the time and she just wants to have them there or because 
it's just like another tool of unreality or if it's a filmic device of like wanting to reveal what's in the photo um i think it's possible that there was nothing in the photos and that like the inserts were shot later (laughs) right of the actual of the of the picture of craig but there's just when you actually see craig in the photo and he's smiling and naturally he's like shot in the warehouse with tons of like negative space above his head which we haven't talked about but like there's so much negative space above everyone's heads in these movie in this movie there's just this sense of calmness and and rightness with everything right like it's it's kind of hard to put your finger on but like the last scene kind of takes place in this accepted reality in this home and like they they look at these photos that are like facing away from the wall right like as if it's like this it's almost as if like the photos and the photo frames being facing away is like this acceptance that like uh, we can allow and make room for metaphysical craziness <laughs> and, and uncertainty in our lives. But we, we don't have to let it be ever present. It's, it's also because like, yeah, the aesthetically, this is so different as well. And then having that uh, photo of Craig with what you just said in the warehouse. It's almost like that reality of everything that preceded seeps in a little bit. Like it's still part of this world. It's still part of us. It's still, you know, it's these memories that we take along, but now we're, you know, yeah, what you said, like it's, it's this, um, as if we've emotionally landed somewhere, uh, in all this morning about, you know, this ghost. Yeah. Yeah. And I also now know what you, I know also now understand what you mean with Craig is the main character because yeah, he is. This movie's about Craig, not about yeah. the microchips and whatnot. That also kind of like ties into uh, a, a small detail in the production as well, which gives that unreality is that apparently they shot it entirely disjointed. So like actors, uh, when there was like a shot reverse shot, there was never an actor who the other actor was talking to because they were heating up somewhere in the corner. Uh, whenever there was a close up of someone, they shot that entirely by themselves. And they also just jumped all around in the script according to, well, some kind of, you know, time management, whatever, to make it as efficient, to film it as efficient as possible, uh, efficiently as possible. But that also really helped to sell that idea of this, like, disjointedness, this, like, uh, uh, nothing is in its right place. Everything is 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 lost in this space that we can clearly see is a warehouse yet it is you know standing in for something else and that also makes that final moment so much more uh, powerful because yeah it is the first it is the first reality that we're seeing almost and i think the movie also ends with like the most mundane line in the whole film and it's so beautiful at that point there's one question I have for you, Brom. In your message, when you sent kind of materials to us earlier, you said, I'm going to actually pull up the exact quote here, that the whole story uh, makes me incredibly sad. Why is that? Well, Mark seemed to have such a genuine vision for this film, and he seems to have uh, everything in place for trying to achieve that and I, I i can't help but look at these films through the lens of a filmmaker right and you probably have this as well mm-hmm. uh and you're always i think we 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 talked about this a while back but like uh, or like a few weeks ago but like um i said something along the lines of like what if you bear your soul and your soul looks like the room you know like that's <laughs> always that's always a fear that you have as a filmmaker um and in 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 uh, in Tell Me Why Zhao's case, I 
I'm I don't feel very sad for him because it found its place and he kind of lead into it to an annoying degree. But like, I also think it, it's Tommy Wiseau is a he's not a nice person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, know? he's yeah, no, he's, no, he's very manipulative and 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 everything that I read about Mark, he seems like such a genuine, like such mm-hmm. a timid, very nervous. Like someone did an interview, Knox Road did an interview with him, and he apparently he was very flustered by the whole thing that they found his information you know Um, and well all the production stories are weirdly positive where uh they're uh, everyone seems to be saying well we had a nice time working on it mark was nice (laughs) uh which is actually you know it's an unusual thing to hear on a production as clearly outsider and troubled as this um oftentimes you have the um, dunning kruger effect where you have this you know director who doesn't know very much thinking that you know, they know everything because of ego and all that. That's the Tommy Wiseau thing, right? Tommy Wiseau thought to one degree or another, he was kind of a, an Orson Welles figure. Um, and I think that contributed to him being really tough to work with. But Mark seems like a chill personality. And I, yeah. Stand up dude. Yeah, he doesn't seem to be that type of filmmaker. He He seems to be... Uh, such a nice person who really had the best intentions of making a good movie and he completely bared his soul in this movie which is you know just beautiful to see that he 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 went entirely for his own vision and what i what makes me so sad is that he was um so unnecessarily maligned for that vision because mm-hmm. just because it didn't fit the standard what we talked about before as well as like didn't fit the standard of uh what a movie is quote unquote supposed to look like or feel like uh i can i can name some godar movies that have a similar vibe as this one it reminded me a lot of like especially like late godar uh, early 90s late 80s like he or like mid 70s something you know like it he brought had to mind inland empire for me like late exactly Lynch. yeah exactly um also you know other uh, experimental filmmakers like hollis frampton who would literally just cut up an argument between a couple he destroys the relationship with formal uh, tools, basically mm-hmm. destroying the, the 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 film. It was shot on all along the way, trying to unsync the sound and all that stuff. Uh, it reminded me after last season. Reminded me a lot of those films about Stan Brakhage and you know all these people trying to make these very particular visions and trying to uh, do something new with the medium and trying to push it into a certain direction. I don't necessarily think that Mark Region was that interested in that uh nor do i think he was that interested in cinema as a pushable entity he just had his methods yeah and he had his goals it did come out like this and they didn't get in each other's way it's so it's such a shame to see that a very promising and yes i'm calling mark region a very promising director but but a promising director director with a singular vision gets into the real world of you know our film landscape and is just beaten down and runs away from it like we've lost someone who could have done more things like this honed his craft and then actually make the film that he wanted to make uh Mm -hmm. according to his vision you know and he was just like uh everyone just assumed uh this was all a mistake and it's bad and ha 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 and that's so boring 
But everyone loves Shane Curth. Everyone <laughs> loves Primer. And that's the other one that I wanted to bring up because, yeah, it reminds me. This is basically a worst case scenario of Primer. <laughs> <laughs> because Primer could have gone the, the same way, but somehow yeah. Carruth was, yeah, more capable. And then you get back to what one of you said in the beginning. It's like, yeah, we, uh, oh, I think it was Devin uh, put too much emphasis on how well your craft is or you said it better than i did <laughs> well I, I i have really contradictory feelings on that because w- when i'm presented with for example conventional blockbuster cinema i'm like people aren't paying enough attention to formalism but when i we're talking about this sort of thing i'm like people aren't paying enough attention to personality <laughs> to uh to to, to uh, an honest depiction of one's way of seeing the world which yeah. it, to me is like the heart of what i like about cinema so i don't know if you ask me on a different day i'll give a totally contradictory answer to that question <laughs> <laughs> as Walt whitman said we contain multitudes yeah, yeah. or at least we contain infighting <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, yeah, but I'd like I, I would li- I would like to 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 like say like yeah it's like watching a Godard it's like watching a, a Straub Hulier, uh you know those two <laughs> however you want to uh, like Cecilia or something it has that very similar vibe of like it's very slow it is very talky it's not the uh, the room it's not birdemic it is not a spectacle it is not it is the absolute opposite of a spectacle but it is an absolute mm-hmm. trip and before recording uh, what- I said uh, to Devin that uh, this film to me is kind of the emissary for why anti-masterpieces don't need to be comedies <laughs> yeah why why being funny is not the only way for films that as devin said are differently competent are uh, are valuable yeah. in i would sense. i would like to to argue that um uh if you want a perfect anti-masterpieces uh double bill watch this one and then or no watch the treasure planet first and then watch this one i think they both have that similar vibe treasure planet i laughed through it a little bit more but has that same like unique singular baffling effect on you where you just mouth agape for an hour <laughs> just staring at the screen rom thank you thank you uh there's very few people who would dive this deep into after last season and uh i'm glad it was you do you have anything you'd like to uh plug before we uh pull the plug on this episode I just finished a movie, uh, which Devin consulted on, which was saw, shot on Super 8 with very uh, with a lot of frontal lighting. Uh, very inspired by this movie. It's called A Weave of Light. It's, I don't know, I send it to festivals. You know how festivals work. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if it ever, ever ever screens anywhere. I don't know. We're going to start our podcast again, the screenplay so far. We're going to start again oh, good. on February nice. 1st. So uh, we're going to actually record uh, in this very space an episode a uh, little update on what we've been doing. So yeah, the screenplay so far, check that out. And just like, I don't know, follow me on Twitter, whatever, or leave me alone, whatever. <laughs> we'll get... No, it was it was wonderful t- to be able to talk about this movie for almost, uh, well, longer than the movie actually lasts. Oh, our pleasure. That is the episode then. Thanks again, Brom. Paige Smith is our associate producer. Thank you, however, listeners, because without you, no one is listening. If you like listening then uh you know leave us a rating uh review us what we should also what? mention our latest our latest patreon subscriber gonna, um, some some guy named brahm yeah 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 <laughs> i was uh, getting to that yeah no thanks for <laughs> brahm very intelligently 
is a subscriber to us on Patreon. It really helps us keep the show going, covers like the costs of running the podcast, hosting it, et cetera, et cetera. So, hey, join that. You get some perks and stuff too. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FilmFormally. This podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Till next time.